Handy History Teaching Tips, blogs in a conversational style. Handy History Teaching Tips are conversational podcasts designed to help history teachers with tips, examples and ideas about history teaching. Sally Thorne, that's me, is a head of department and senior examiner. Helen Snelson was a head of department and now trains history teachers. Between us, we have more years classroom history teaching experience than we are going to admit here. Both of us regularly write resources and present at conferences. We are proudly history specific and practical in our approach. Our hope is that this podcast will become something of a problem page for history teachers. Think of Helen and I as your agony aunts. If you're wrestling with something particularly tricky and need some help, drop us an email at handyhistoryteachingtips at gmail.com or tweet us. I'm at Mrs Thorne and Helen is at Snelson H. And we will see what we can cook up between us. Hello, this series is aiming to explain the meaning and scope of the disciplinary concepts in school history. And we start this series with a general discussion about history and historical inquiry. Hi, Helen. Hi, Sally. Really good to be talking about this. Um, It can be really difficult, really difficult as a a non-history specialist or or someone new to history teaching to get to grips with all of this. You know, actually, I want to be really honest up front, despite a really good specialist history training, I didn't get concepts first time around. I had to go back and back to rethink and reframe my understanding in the light of my developing years of practice it took me a long time to become fluent in this stuff and I've absolutely no time you know for people who use these terms to shut down debate um because you know actually being honest about the fact that they are really complex and engaging with them and engaging therefore with things that we're finding really hard I've always thought is really important role modeling about learning hard stuff we get kids to do it all the time so I really think we should be prepared to 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 think hard and be prepared to be challenged and to be changed on this stuff Yeah, I massively agree. I think it's really important to say that even experienced history teachers can kind of struggle with the lingo. And it it doesn't mean that that we're not or they're not teaching effectively, um, but that the terminology can be really quite complex. um, And certain things can be known by several different terms, which I think just creates more confusion. You know, you don't realise, well, I am actually doing this. I just don't call it what you call it. Um, And I think that some people can find it really off-putting and they think, I just don't want to engage with this at all because they might feel a bit stupid like asking what this means or that means when in reality like I said they probably know um they it's just that they they know it by a different name or perhaps they haven't really thought about it as a, a you know in a kind of very specific way does that kind of make sense yeah completely and and actually I think very few people in the history world are really clear thinkers I'm not one um I really am not um and I admire those who are and I learn from them constantly um, I think sometimes it it can seem, I think, as if people are talking another language and, and they're so confident. Um, an advantage of age is that as I get older, I realise they're not trying to sound intimidating, even if they are. And that I actually, you know, I should have the humility to just keep learning. Um, yeah. And I, I have learned a lot over the years. And, and actually, you know, despite what we're saying, um, there is an onus on us because I really don't think you can teach history well without a solid understanding of history as an academic discipline. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think having that strong grasp 
um, kind of really it makes for more effective teaching, particularly bearing in mind, you know, that kind of we all agree that metacognition in the in the classroom is really important. Um, and so it's important that teachers have a, a kind of good grasp of the discipline so that they can illuminate it to, to some extent um, to students, you know, not just this is this is how you know this is what happened in the past but also this is how we study it this is how we frame it and um, so i think the the word there is is discipline isn't it this is um this is a discipline and a definition of an academic discipline um can be really quite wide so it's like the expertise of the historian um it's their work their methodologies their way of studying and their ways of asking questions and the different ways that they communicate, all of those those kinds of things. And um, so I find it, it really helpful to think about what it is that makes history distinctly different from, say, physics and physicists or economics and economists and those are the things that make history a distinct discipline and you know it is a bit more than just the obvious answer of it's better than this (laughs) (laughs) although it is yeah um yeah we we tend to talk don't we about history having both substantive and disciplinary knowledge um and and i find it helpful to to think of the substantive as the body of knowledge about the past and the disciplinary knowledge is to do with the form of knowledge so things to do with the discipline yeah yeah so i um, like i think tend to think of the substantive as the what and then the disciplinary as the how um but yeah. i i you know i i also get a bit bogged down here you know how would you characterize the difference between um like substantive knowledge and substantive concepts so um i think of substantive concepts as things like revolution and empire and um, but substantive knowledge is is a bit more specific so french revolution british empire do you think is that kind of a fair thing to say that's interesting I'm not sure first thought um um, what I have come to think is that it's certainly easier to teach well I think you've got to teach empire communism etc in time and place so let me just muse on that for a minute so 1917 communism Russia is a different thing from communism in Cuba in the 1960s and learning about lots of communism would then give you a sense of the whole concept and its multifacetedness. Mm. So, so yeah, I think that's helpful. And uh, you know, thanks, Sally, because talking to you about this, there you go, is is developing my thinking. <laughs> Absolutely great. Well, that's great. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a really good example. I think when you're trying to teach um, children about communism as a concept, it's it's you know, you can get in some real sticky language it's, it's really difficult to exemplify that without using real world examples so if you're if I'm kind of thinking right here is my um, my concept that I want to teach them communism and I'm going to pick that up with these examples across the curriculum so that by the time they get to the end of it they have a, a fairly good understanding of what communism is and what it looks like when it's applied in history so that you know that's kind of yeah, what I think about about substantive stuff, but I feel like I'm, maybe I'm getting off the point a bit here. <laughs> no, no, not at all. It's really helpful. But let let's make that division because I think we're going to build this series, aren't we, around the other aspect, around the disciplinary concepts. Um, yeah. Sometimes you 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 see them called second order concepts. Um, and there isn't even a completely definitive list of what those include. Um, but over the course of the last 40, what, 40 ish years, nearer 50 history teachers in the UK have been theorising about these in schools and so let's try in our conversation to draw upon some of that legacy in in our chats um, yeah 
I hope I'm allowed to say I, I really find some of this thinking very hard, as I say, even though at the same time, I know that, that thinking about it is really central to my teaching. Yeah, honestly, I, like that is a really comforting thing to hear. And I find it really hard, too. And my ideas shift and change as I interact with these things. And, um, you know, I think kind of harder about um, about certain concepts various times it's what's interesting too is that if you look at the way the discipline in school is theorized in other countries so for example in Canada via the work of Satius um, or in the Netherlands via kind of Van Boxdel and Van Dry's work um, then it's it's all done slightly differently um, depending on where you are so there are more similarities but there are also differences so it's really important to remember that you, you know there is debate about the discipline it's not just a fixed thing yeah historians in debate shocker hey? yeah. <laughs> yeah these 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 definitions are are debated um let's have that debate it's yeah. it it helps us all learn just as as you know you did up there with the uh, um substantive uh, concept point with me that's just great one of the things i do find hopelessly unhelpful is to try to talk about knowledge and skills in history um partly because it, it's too unclear to people who are not historians. Um, and this has worried history teachers, I know, for a long time. It's really not history if you just, taking a very narrow definition of knowledge, if you just know stuff about the past, although it's really handy for impressing your mates at pub quizzes, of course. Yes. Um, <laughs> but But likewise, you can't actually do anything with a source and you can't structure an answer to a question without some really good topic knowledge. Um, So I think it's actually just really unhelpful. And I therefore have just tended to avoid the whole knowledge and skills thing completely and talk about thinking historically. Yeah, definitely. But I um, I do think we need to define that for people. And um, I go for history as an approach to studying the past as an opener so history is not the past um it's the study of the past and whatever politicians may think when they talk about the hand of history and other such twaddle and stuff like that no it's (laughs) yeah no and i think that really sets us up for so many positive uh positive discussions with kids if you say that we don't know the whole past it is it is just the study of the past isn't it Mm. and it's and it's the way we study the past to seek evidence-based answers questions we ask about the past so it immediately sets up this idea of a of a dialogue between present and past which I love if we conceptualize the discipline in that way yeah yeah and and um kind of record we need to recognize also that different questions and different evidence are going to yield different interpretations um of past people and events Oh, that's yeah, that's nice and, and that these are always contestable because mm-hmm. the evidence used for historical arguments must be verifiable um, and therefore open to challenge. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's really yeah, crucial, yeah. I think. Yeah. So we, we have to, to live the idea in school history that history is a debate. And I think that's so important to make make it clear that that's to, to, to express that to students. Um, it's a debate between historians, between the past and the present, and um, you know, even down to between history teachers arguing over what to include in the curriculum. It's it's all a debate. It's all up for grabs. Yeah, it's absolutely got to be at the heart of our of all our teaching of our curriculum, and and that's why a really great inquiry question should frame the learning and reflect that. Ah, yeah, great. So let's hone in on inquiry questions then, and why history teachers really love them. Great. Right. Good idea. OK, so a brilliant inquiry question then frames a whole sequence of learning. Yeah. 
Yeah. Students can investigate the past in, in various ways to gain knowledge that then helps them give an answer. Not the answer, of course. We never have the answer in history, <laughs> just an answer to the end, to the inquiry question. So over the past few years, history teachers have increasingly turned to historians to find out what they are asking about topics for inspiration. Um, so real live historical questions, so much better for inquiry questions than and for learning, therefore, than, than sterile um, or a historical debate. Mm. Um, I mean, think of that classic example that Michael Riley gives in his wonderful teaching history article uh, into the history garden in Teaching History 99. Was the Treaty of Versailles fair? I mean, what a rubbish question. It would lead to really weak answers. And it, it's actually not a historical question um, because it's, it's got a moral issue to it. So and he talks about how much better a question it is to say, why did some people take the view that the Treaty of Versailles was unfair? And you can just spend ages pondering the difference between those two. One's a really good inquiry question. The other's not. Yeah, the other's a bit, yeah, blah. <laughs> so yeah. I think, yeah, I and I think that uh, going, like going back to what you were saying about what historians are uh, asking, it's finding out the current historical debates on a topic is such an important way to start sequence planning. And it is really important, I think, to to recognise that your work is never done here. Like, it's very nice to think, oh, I've got all my inquiry questions. That's going to be my curriculum for 20 years. Well, that is just <laughs> reality. So um, I think a really good example of that would be to look at how the study of British Empire history has moved on um, in recent years. So um, we kind of had the when I started teaching we had this this kind of two um, two interpretations of the British Empire you know the original glorious and the revisionist really not glorious and um, so often you, you would find empire units that were kind of framed questions that were framed well, was it all bad or was it really bad you know was there balance but I think when you look at what's being published about empire now it's it's becoming less reflective of the discipline to ask those questions and so therefore it, you, you know there's your your reasoning behind why you would ask that question is is kind of, I don't know, poleaxed really. That I mean, the debate's moved on, and um, it's understood that weighing up positives and negatives is a rather pointless exercise, and you know, actually maybe a bit unseemly now. Um, and it's rare to find academic historians approaching it from that angle these days. So I did a nice little um, exercise when I was thinking of this example. I, was, I had a look on um, Amazon for recent books that were published on British Empire and books that are going to be published. By the way, there are some cracking books on British Empire coming out, I could tell you, in the next two years. Um, so I, yeah, and, and when you look at those things, it's there's a lot more focus on telling the histories of the colonised um, these days. So, for example, Priyamvada Gopal's book, um, Insurgent Empire, um, considers the influence of Britain's colonial subjects on British ideas about freedom. Like, what a mind-blowingly fascinating question. Like, mm, don't brilliant. think about, you know, what impact did the British have? Well, actually, what impact did the colonised and the and the colonies have on Britain? And I think that is an amazing thing. So, um, and, and kind of doing this together as a department, and with, you know, if you've got a small department like I have, um, broadening it out, doing it with other, other history teachers that you know, honing it, spending time on it, like kind of working with the knowledge, thinking about it, I just think it's great. I mean, have you seen that that teaching history um, now has this kind of series on what historians have been arguing about, which I think is really great. 
Oh yeah, that's a good that's a good reminder. It's the one that used to be called Polychronicle, so it's now a little bit more a bit a little bit more accessible. Yeah, in terms of, but it's a really great way into just picking up on some topics. What what the current debate is? Yeah, because I think another thing we need to remember is that the inquiry question also structures the disciplinary learning for us, doesn't it? So we yeah. know what we are going to assess by reading the question. So take a question such as why did the Sarajevo assassination trigger a world war and we know we've got a causation as a disciplinary concept focus there Um, whereas if we ask how were British lives transformed 1914 to 19 we're studying the impact of the war and the changes it brought about so I think that's another thing as well as having very current um, uh, arguments make sure that they're very concept focused and there's a clarity so that it's not that you don't talk about any other sort of uh, part of the discipline in the process of studying the inquiry but you know that the ultimate assessment at the end you know where it's going yes yeah, yeah. and and it's uh, yeah and that I think that has to be really clear in the question and I think that that's true for key stage four and five as well as key stage three so now that I find that I'm four years into teaching the current specs at GCSE and A level um, it's become much easier to conceive good inquiries that tie together sequences of lessons and I think that it can be really powerful and um, if you can match the questions with the kind of Um, I suppose the disciplinary focus of the unit as set by the exam board. So if I um, take the Germany Edexcel unit as an example, um, half the questions on that paper deal with interpretations. So what I've been working on is making sure that my questions, my my broad questions are grounded in the historical debates that because you never know, you know, they they might come up on the exam. So they've they've studied it through that lens. So my students have just finished their unit one work um, on was Weimar doomed from the start and kind of thinking about the inevitability of, of the failure of Weimar. Um, and that that's kind of my example. But then also I, I you know, when I teach my period study, the inquiries are, are structured around consequence questions and the idea of significance mm-hmm. and the development study inquiries. are They're broadly about change and continuity. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at A-level, what I try to do is um, I teach um, AQA, Tudors, 1C, like the most popular unit, I think. Um, and I try really hard to structure my inquiries over long periods of time because the exam board tries to set questions that span at least 20 years. So mm-hmm. while I, I, you know, I want my students to learn the content really carefully and in detail, the discussions that we have in class should always be about them doing this kind of big picture breadth stuff because you know they they find that really difficult anyway and i can i can see that when i when they're kind of they're writing their essays about tudor rebellions they they just focus for example on the individual rebellions without recognizing that actually there's ebb and flow here you know why isn't there a rebellion in between these and they they kind of really struggle with that breadth um so I, you know, they they find it, but but I'm not going to lie. You know, I I find writing inquiries about this really difficult too, because up until I started teaching one C when I joined my current school four years ago, I knew next to nothing about the cheat. I taught a bit of it in year seven. I just I, you know, it wasn't part of my degree, so it's been a learning curve of heady steepness, and I think it's even harder to kind of pick that out because there is so much written about the topic. So. You know, it's a massively long term, ongoing process trying to to kind of weed out the inquiry questions that are really going to help. Yeah. Wow. That's a brilliant example, though, Sal. And it's it's fascinating that therefore looking at the inquiry questions across your school years, you'd see uh, both. Yeah. What's assessed, including in the exams. So going from that, but also a really coherent learning journey. 
absolutely yeah. fantastic yeah and uh, you know thinking about what what um kind of Ofsted is is saying at the moment that's a very Ofsted thing to say but the idea that the curriculum is is the progression model that it gets progressively harder um you, you know it's worth pointing out that you can move students from fairly simplistic inquiries at the start of year seven to meatier ones in year nine and that if you think hard about the different concepts and how they build over time um, then you will make more effective historians at the end so if I think about my old curriculum and I, I'm going to stress this is my old curriculum because I realise that many of these things will be very unfashionable now but so my in year seven we'd look at why did William win the Battle of Hastings and that you know got them thinking to begin with about long-term and short-term causation and, and kind of trigger causes that sort of thing and then we come back to that in year eight when we looked at the causes of the English Civil War but we'd also add in into that kind of political economic religious causes so just kind of a different way of of conceptualizing that causation and then in year nine we do both like when we studied the holocaust then um we'd we do both of those things again but we'd also talk about the concept of individual and collective responsibility and that kind of causation you know is it one person is it the, the ideas of one person is it the responsibility of many is it inevitable all of those things um so that that kind of we come back to it so that that is my really rough example and i stress again you know obviously you can talk about political and economic causes of williams victory and and you know you may well if you're if you're kind of being really ambitious for your students but hopefully you get the point because it's important to talk about what more difficult looks like within each of the concepts um and and not just in causation to kind of a wider thing that's really, really helpful. Thanks, Sel. Um, and I think I think at an individual teacher level as well, I, you know, I know my trainees are going to be absolutely fine when the penny drops about this crafting inquiry questions. Not that they're doing it as as expertly and in much depth as you're talking about there, but that they've they've got the 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 basics. And so I really, really would encourage people to, as I started at the beginning by saying, sometimes you need to go back and back and, and, and look at this stuff and remind yourself. Um, for, for more on all of this, it's really worth reading the What's the Wisdom on about inquiry mm -hmm. questions in, in, in the latest teaching history, teaching history uh, 178, because, um, yeah, I can guarantee you'll go back and just think about something in a slightly different way than you've thought of it, at least for a while, if not never before. It'd be really useful. Yeah, yeah. And I think that you know it involves the journey to this involves gaining topic and wider knowledge um so that students can answer the question you know they, they, that's kind of it's all part of the same thing isn't it so we kind of get back to that idea come full circle that you can't do history without a body of knowledge um and students um also need to learn how a historian works with that knowledge so kind of the form that that historical knowledge takes you know i think i've said knowledge so many times there that it's the word has ceased to <laughs> no not at all but i think you also make a really cracking point which is that in the same way as you pick up your your key stage four inquiries to reflect the types of questions they're going to get so if it's going to be an interpretations question or a change question we've got to be really careful that at key stage three our inquiry questions are a variety as well so that they're not just doing causation questions or just gaining knowledge because otherwise by the time they get to GCSE they won't have practiced the other aspects of the discipline yeah. well enough so there's that crude hard reality about helping them get prepared for public exams but then it's also actually just good history education historians don't spend the whole time doing causation and learning knowledge so you know no. give them a really good to think historically yeah. yes yeah yeah 
Oh, right. Well, it's coming up to the um, holiday break in these weird times. What are you what are you doing historically? What have you what have you reconnected with? Well, so I finally am getting around to reading The Mirror and the Light. I'm very, very excited. So I haven't let my even though I got it on the day that it came out, I haven't allowed myself to open it until I'd finished reading, rereading Wallfall and Bring Up the Bodies. Um, excellent, you know, Tudor history. I've really loved, I've really enjoyed rereading it, but I've got very excited for, for reading the new one. Yeah, that is exactly what I'm doing. I'm hoping to like, nobody will bother me. I can scroll myself away and really have it because it's not the sort of book you want to read in bits, is it? I am no, so no. excited about it. So excited. Um, that and I've been cleaning the house to You're Dead to Me because oh. like you know yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i've been catching up on all those history podcasts as well oh good to talk to you sally and yeah. uh, we'll continue these discussions uh, at another time but um yeah, yeah hopefully that's a, a useful start thanks for making me think more deeply again <laughs> okay thanks. okay yeah